You're listening to Parenting Our Future with certified parent coach, Robin McMahon, author of The Yelling Cure and founder of Parenting for Connection. My podcast is all about providing you with the tools and solutions you need in your parenting so you can create the family you always wanted. Hi parents, it's Robin McMahon here. Just before you dive into this episode, I want to invite you to join my new membership site for free. My site, which is at www.parent-toolbox.com, is the companion to my award-winning podcast where you will find game-changing tools and resources from me and from my expert guests who are among the top leaders in the parenting world. Join for free today at www.parent-toolbox.com. Now back to the show. It's Robin McMahon here with Parenting Our Future. Welcome back to another episode. I cannot wait for you to listen to the conversation that I have ahead with my two guests. I have Greg Bear and Ryan Rudzetsky. They are the two authors of the book, When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers, Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. Oh, I'm so happy to welcome you both. Thank you for being here. Oh my gosh, thank you for having us. What a joy. Thank you so much, Robin. We're so excited. That's great. Well, I want to tell everybody a little bit about you first. So, Greg, you are a dad and a child advocate, the director of the Grable Foundation, whose work has drawn comparisons to your hero, Fred Rogers. Um, and for more than a decade, decade, you have helped lead Remake Learning, a network of educators, scientists, artists, and makers that you founded in 2007. That is incredible. And Ryan, you are a writer whose science and education reporting has garnered several awards and fellowships. You are a graduate of the University of Pittsburgh and you've taught elementary school in South Louisiana. And you also are a freelance, a freelancer and you write magazine stories that focus on everything from schools to space to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Okay, we've got something in common here. Um, I grew up watching Mr. Rogers. I just love him. I love him probably more now than I did then because I see what he's all about now. And so um, tell me what it is about Mr. Rogers that you love and why is it you wrote this book? So we're coming to you from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And that's important because it's right here in Pittsburgh at WQED, America's first public television station, where Fred Rogers filmed Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. So it was, it was produced from 1968 through 2001 right here in Pittsburgh. So I mentioned that to say Ryan and I are Western Pennsylvania kids who grew up with Fred Rogers, right? We had the joy of watching Fred Rogers alongside our families with our loved ones. And like you, right, it's just, it's a deep and important part of our own childhoods. And in fact, to this day, the only time that someone outside of my own family has passed away and I've cried was that morning that I remember uh, National Public Radio telling me that Fred Rogers had passed away. I mean, it just, he was that important to me and, and you and so many others. Mm-hmm. And, and so we have that childhood affinity but like you have come to appreciate who Fred Rogers was in our work as adults and working as educators, as allies to educators and really understanding what is it that Fred Rogers did and why is that important and how is that important today? And it's that work that we wanted to make relevant in 2021 and beyond in telling a story about Fred Rogers, but also telling a story about teaching and parenting in this modern day. One of the one of the most exciting things about learning and education today is that 
we now know more than we ever have about how people learn. The learning sciences as a field has advanced dramatically over the last 50 years. And if you talk to some of the top learning scientists, if you read some of the latest research, if you look through some of the latest papers, what learning scientists are saying now, they're talking about the importance of listening. They're talking about the importance of physical and psychological safety. They're talking about the importance of building beautiful physical spaces for kids to learn in. And they're talking about how important it is for kids to feel loved and capable of loving. These don't necessarily sound like scientific terms, but this is what today's top scientists are saying. And oftentimes, if you read their papers, they read almost like a script from the neighborhood. I mean, the things Fred Rogers was doing 50 years ago here in Pittsburgh, um, they just put him decades ahead of his time. And if you look at some of what's what some of the most innovative educators are doing today, you can see them using Fred's blueprint in their work. So, so when you talk about his blueprint, what do you mean by that? So let's go back to the 1960s and we're gonna situate you again in Pittsburgh, right? So here's Fred Rogers. For some amount of time, he has been studying with people who turned out to be some of the giants of child development theory of the 20th century. Margaret mm -hmm. McFarland, Benjamin Spock, Eric Erickson, they all happened to be here in Pittsburgh. And Fred, among others, had the opportunity to study alongside them, learn from them. And the work that they did, we would now call whole child, the way that educators and administrators talk about well, what does whole child learning and development look like? That was something that was developed decades ago, if not, you know, there's something timeless and classic about learning too, right? But it was, so Fred was grounded in that, but he was also grounded in understanding what was innovative and creative and future facing. And so we love to talk about the Fred method, you know, drawing upon Fred Rogers name as connecting what's, what's timeless and classic about learning with what's innovative, creative, future facing and attractive to kids learning and that motivates them to learn. And it's that connection that Fred did so beautifully in his program. And it's what some of our best educators in schools, museums, libraries, and other places all around us in wherever the place we live are doing today. They're employing that Fred method. And one of the, the things, oh. I, no, I was just gonna say, so what, what you're talking about, the Fred method, and, and Ryan, I'll let you jump in here in, in one second, you know, is really about what you just said, that when we know how people learn, really the best way to learn is not to force them to learn those ABCs and one, two, threes, it's, it's listening to them, it's, providing physical and psychological safety. I mean, whoa, right? That's not something I heard about or learned in school or felt in school. Um, and also to feel loved and capable of loving. Yes. Whoa, that, I mean, that makes my heart sing mm. now. Uh, but wow, that's so different. That's so different. And sorry, Ryan, I'll let you, I'll let you continue on. I just, I just, no. had, to, I just had to say that again, like, wow. It kind of gives me goosebumps when I hear that. You know, that's I'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly what I was going to talk about. Um, you know, Fred himself was once asked, you have, you know, somebody said, you have an educational TV show. Why aren't you focusing on spelling words? Why aren't you focusing on fractions? And Fred said something that I will never forget. He said, I would rather focus on the tools for learning if we give children the tools, they'll want to learn the facts. And more importantly, they'll use the facts to build and not destroy. 
And so what we've done or what we've tried to do in this book is to elucidate what are those tools for learning that Mr. Rogers was teaching in the neighborhood. And those come down to things like curiosity, creativity, communication, um, the ability to work together. And what's most remarkable, I think, about Fred and his tools is that, again, if you look at what learning scientists and even workplace experts are saying today about what's most important for helping children succeed, it's all the things Fred was teaching in the neighborhood for, for 30 some years. And Robin, yeah. let's take you to, let's take you to Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, because I think it, it, we can all put that vision in our heads, those of us lucky enough to watch the show, right? We, we, the show comes on, we hear the familiar music, but there actually is some quite busy jazz bars that slow down as Fred enters the studio, enters his living room, right? And he sits us down, calms us down. There's a deliberateness and an intentionality about that, about creating a space into which you're invited that yeah. slows down where you feel both physically and psychologically safe, right? And that safety is so important because it's a space in which I feel like I can belong. Maybe I'm going to be respected. Maybe I'm going to be loved because we can't even start to talk about creativity and curiosity and communication unless those foundational things are there. Mm -hmm. And that's the science that was behind the program that wasn't apparent to any of us, right? And it's, it was the aha for me and Ryan in part in writing this book is, is really appreciating Fred Rogers, not just as that loving character who mm -hmm. exuded all of those sensibilities about what it means to love kids, but he was a deliberate engineer and learning scientist who said, let's take what we're learning about learning it and apply it in the setting. And, um, and that those core principles of social emotional learning are critical to any kid soaring in whatever his or her passions might be. Wow, that is that is so so cool. So it was more than just a trolley and uh, some sweaters, right? Yeah. <laughs> it was more, and, and and we didn't know, we didn't know. But yeah. how, when you say it like that, that's so true, right? To be invited in and you you are calmed down, your mind is calm, your nervous system is calm, and you can settle in and learn. Wow, yes, that's so true. If if anything. Fred was almost too good at uh, you infusing science into a show. It's basically, it's almost invisible if you're not looking for it. But the most remarkable thing about the neighborhood is you can pick just about any frame from any one of his more than 900 episodes and find, you can see that intentionality. Mm -hmm. You know, when he comes in, as Greg mentioned earlier, the camera pans from left to right. He did that on purpose because that's how children learn to read. They go from left to right. When he puts on his sweaters, the sweaters are his trademark, but they're also a device. Sweaters are warm, they're comfortable, they make you feel welcome, they make you feel relaxed and ready to learn. Even the color of the walls in the neighborhood are blue, painted deliberately for the calming effect that color can have. Once you're aware of the learning science that Rogers was using, the neighborhood becomes this remarkable teaching tool and it's astounding how much work and how much intention went into every frame that he created. Wow, that's incredible. And of course I had no idea, you know, and uh, then the trolley goes into the make-believe world, which is, isn't it called make-believe? The neighborhood of make-believe. Yeah, <laughs> um, and there is the, the king and the queen and the prince and the cat that lives in the tower. And uh, I, 
then there's the mailman, Mr. What's his name? Mr. McFeely? Mr. McFeely. Speedy delivery. McFeely, come on. You're good. That's crazy. His name is Mr. McFeely. I can't even, like, I never even realized that until I just said it out loud now. <laughs> Played by the extraordinary actor, David Newell, who's oh, still really? with us. Oh, beautiful. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. So, so what you're talking, so the Fred method is this, uh, it, it, am I right in, in saying it is um, the tools for learning, the curiosity, the creativity, the communication and working together. Is that the Fred method or is it more than that? I think that's right. I, I sometimes think of the Fred method as an equation, timeless and classic, mm. but future facing and innovative, right? Mm. There are some things that forever from thousands of years ago and thousands of years from now will be timeless and classic, like the role of deep and caring relationships mm. and genuine love for kids, right? There's some things that are never going to change, yeah. but then there's the learning sciences work about what we're continuously learning about kids, what motivates them to learn, what type of settings most support that learning. And, and so it's that equation of timeless and classic which with future facing that represents the Fred method. That's great. And, and I have to say all of this beautifully relates to the world that I live in, in parenting, uh, it is the, exactly the same thing. You know, it's, it's curiosity, you know, it's, it, and we, we are learning so much more about the way the brain works yes. as well in parenting, right? We understand cortisol, we understand oxytocin, we, you know, understand what validating emotions does. It's all really, really important stuff. And when connection is high, right? Resistance is low and connection means safety. It means, uh, being heard, being listened to, right? All of what you're talking about is vitally important for us all. And these are not just anecdotal stories that um, come out of your experience, you know, in Pittsburgh, uh, having, you know, having Mr. Rogers show and that sort of thing. We're talking about like these, there's some really significant um, experiences that people have had. And what, I, what I'm leading to is what you talk about in the book about Google's management dilemma. Um, so Google, Google, um, they had a project called Project Oxygen, right? And I, I wonder if maybe you can explain um, how that worked and what they learned from that. Because I think it is profound. And because we're talking about adults, right? It's easy for us to say, oh, that's great for kids. But let's talk about us grownups too. <laughs> grownups sure. is the key. <laughs> <laughs> so Project Oxygen was an effort that Google launched in 2008 to try to figure out what are the behaviors, what are the mindsets, what are the skills that define our best managers? And the company's assumption had long been, look, our best programmers are going to be the best bosses. They're going to be good bosses because they were the best programmers. They were the best programmers because they just know the most stuff. They have mastered their craft. They launched Project Oxygen as a way to sort of validate that approach. Google is a very technical company. They wanted to make sure that their assumption was correct. What they found after years of analyzing, I think it was 10,000 data points. This, was, this came from exit interviews. This came from employee surveys. This came from all sorts of uh, performance evaluation data. They found that among the behaviors that defined great managers, Content mastery, the ability to write computer code in your sleep, ranked dead last. Now, that's not to say it wasn't important, because it absolutely was. You can't be a, a great manager at Google without knowing what everybody you're managing is doing. 
But the most important behaviors were, can you be a good coach? Can you listen to the people you're trying to manage? Can you empower the people around you? Do you show concern for other people's success, for other people's well-being? You know, it's not um, an exaggeration to say that the behaviors that are most important at Google are the behaviors that were emphasized in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And again, they are the behaviors that if you talk to learning scientists, if you talk to workplace experts today are saying, these are the things that are most critical for children's success uh, in the coming decades. Wow. Wow, that's huge. Um, I say, I, I, I like to uh, talk about that same sort of thing in a less delicate way. This is how I describe it. So, um, you know, you may be the smartest person in the room, but nobody's going to want to work with you or be uh, in relationship with you if you're a jerk, right? Like if you don't have emotional intelligence, you can't relate to other people. You're not curious. You're more furious. You jump to conclusions. You don't listen to people. You attack people. Uh, you're not easy to work with those are the people who will not succeed, or at least will not get the promotion, get the job, get the, the, the girl, the guy, right? Yeah, I mean, at, at its core, Fred Rogers in many ways too is a humanist. I mean, it's about being human, to convey love and to let others know that they're capable of loving, to respect questions, to respect that sometimes you don't have the answers, to wonder aloud, right? I mean, the things that you're describing are the best people we wanna surround ourselves with. They're the people that exude love in all sorts of ways. And that's what Fred Rogers did. And it's mm -hmm. the environment that he created on his television show and that we can create in our homes and our neighborhoods and our schools, other sites of learning that um, we wanna be, right? Mm -hmm. And it makes sense even, you know, on an intuitive level. Um, if you think about the people in your life who have meant the most to you, mm. I doubt that you're going to pick those people based on how much they knew about a given subject. Now, of course, we can always be in awe of someone who's a genius, someone who's extremely smart, but the people who help shape who we are, the people who help us feel that life is worth living, they're always the people who have these very human qualities that were um, at the center of the neighborhood. Mm. Yeah. Something about you, right? So, you know, what's what's really interesting is is sort of talking about what kids are learning today, right? And and I know this is not a commentary on the educational system and what kids learn, what they don't learn. Um, and so, you know, it's about what but it but but we do need to talk about what they are learning today versus what really they could be learning, maybe should be learning, maybe need to be included in their curriculum, right? And, and one of the things that, you know, I think we all know and we all witness, Greg, you're a dad, you, you know what this is like, when you watch how your kids just are so excited to learn, right? They want to learn and they're curious and they're, they're, you know, they're studying things like a walk is an adventure for them. Yeah. You know, they're picking up little things, they're looking at, you know, all this stuff. It's beautiful to watch. And then when they go to school, and I'm going to talk about our experiences, you know, that that, they're, that love of learning and exploring and the little scientists that they are when they're really little is not often, it's not really honored. And it's like, okay, but you've got to sit and learn like this, right? And I love, and, and so that can hold kids back. And so I, I speak to that as a mom of a child who has learning disabilities, who has ADHD, 
right? And, uh, and I told you a little story just before we started about how, you know, my child was, is, does struggle in school. He, he does. And um, just before I, I was about to record this episode, my husband came in my office and he's like, okay, well, we got this assignment due because it's the last day of the quarter today before he starts a new semester next Monday, you know, all this stuff. So we're, we're talking about it. We're worried. And, and so when, 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 our, when our son is sitting learning and we, you know, we're, we're pained at the lessons that he needs to learn that we know for sure he's not going to use right? Like I always say mitosis and meiosis. Like I never even knew what that was before last year when I had to learn it to teach him, to help him learn it. Um, and what happens is, is it leaves him feeling less than. It leaves him feeling like he's not smart and he's not good enough. And as much as we try and encourage him and show him and, you know, nurture him, it is the message that he's getting from school. And that's a powerful message because your peers are there. And as a teenager, your peer group is more important than your parents, right? And, yeah. uh, and so the great thing is, though, the really positive thing that has just happened is that he's doing this career education course and he got his first 100% in interviewing. It's a big deal. <laughs> we wanted to like, you know, have a parade. We were so happy for him because in my mind, that's the stuff that really matters. Like him being able to connect with someone to sparkle for them. He probably wouldn't want me to say he sparkles, but he sparkles. You know, and to be able to like show his personality and yeah. like what you said, I'm going to steal your line. What lights him up was that, right? And so I kind of want to talk about learning, education, and going for what lights kids up. So can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and isn't this the challenge for us as parents in our homes, teachers in classrooms, a librarian, a museum director? I mean, it's, it's taking time to notice what lights kids up. We've, we've got to hold two tensions simultaneously. Yes, there's foundational knowledge, and we have to pursue that foundational knowledge, and we have to help kids secure that foundational knowledge. Mm -hmm. And... We can also approach it by noticing their questions, respecting their questions, find ways to integrate interdisciplinary learning, serious project-based learning, using different methods and pedagogies to bring about that love of learning. There's a great, very specific example in uh, chapter one in our book. Hedda Sherapin, who worked with Fred Rogers for decades, re uh, relays the story of, of walking into a classroom and noticing that the teacher has a, a basket. The teacher calls it an ask it basket, right? And to your point, because kids come into school with questions and exclamation points, and ideally that's as much in 12th grade as it is in first grade. But we know the reality is it's more in first and second, third grades, right? So, but the, the beautiful thing the teacher did is as kids are asking questions, no matter how wild that question might be, said, you know what, would take time, notice the question, acknowledge the question, take time to write it down, wasn't quick to say, I've got the answer, let me tell you the answer, and would put it in the ask it basket. And then reserved time when kids in that classroom would together wonder aloud, like, what is the answer to this question? Even if it was two plus two, or what is mitosis? I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> so let me tell you. you know, <laughs> so it's like that, that just allow for opportunity to wonder, right? So 
yes, there are some instructional approaches, but we can approach it from that, from that whole child sensibility and, and really personalizing the experience for kids and noticing what lights them up and using the things that light them up to pursue that uh, knowledge. Because it's only when a kid has that sense of safety, but also that sense of agency, that they're really gonna pursue learning on their own, which is what we want kids to do. We want them to pursue learning on their, on their own and not because it's being um, compelled of them. Yes, I totally agree. Ryan? It's, it's interesting that we keep using this phrase, you know, what lights kids up? Because I think this goes back to that idea of Rogers just being so far ahead of his time um, when it comes to the learning sciences. When kids are in a state of wonder, when they are encountering something they're curious about or something they want to know more about, they do light up and they light up in a very real biological sense. Their brains light up. You can watch this on EKGs. And one of the most interesting things about wonder is that when kids are feeling curious, they're more likely not only to learn the thing they care about, but also they recall better all the other things that they encounter that day. That's how, that's how powerful wonder really is. Wow. It's in the hard thing though, is that what makes kids wonder that's different for every kid. Maybe it's mitosis. Maybe it's interviewing. Maybe it's learning what two plus two is. For various reasons, at least here in the United States, um, our schools and classrooms are standardized. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but we need more than schools. Kids need to be exposed to um, the speedy delivery man. They need to know how restaurants work. They need to go down to the bakery and see what it takes to bake a muffin. These are all things that Rogers did in the neighborhood. Um, I think that approach to learning of valuing the learning that happens everywhere is something yeah. that um, as a society, we would do well to start um, prioritizing, to start valuing um, for exactly the reasons you and Greg just described. Sometimes a child is gonna find what lights him or her up, not necessarily in a classroom, but in a bakery or in a restaurant or in a lab. Um, and the more exposure we can give our kids to those kinds of places, the better. I couldn't agree more. And I think we can't negate that, that there are lessons everywhere. And, you know, when, when we first entered in lockdowns and the pandemic and schools were closed and schools were online, I know a lot of parents had a lot of panic. And, you know, for the first phase of that, you know, with the 2019, 2020 school year, uh, you know, I know I, I found myself saying, you know, it's okay if, what they're learning in school is slipping by. There's other lessons they need to learn. Compassion, empathy, curiosity, you know, different things that are important, right? Yes. Learning doesn't just happen at school. It happens all around you all the time. And those lessons are also important. And it's also important what we model too, right? To, to show them what curiosity is, to show them what wonder is, and also kindness and empathy and all of that, right? One the Oh, go ahead, Greg. Well, I just was, especially now, 13 months into this horrible health pandemic, too many of us talk about learning loss. And yes, by traditional measures, yes, there probably have been slower growth in traditional measured learning. But to your point, Robin, there has been all sorts of other learning that we're cap not capturing. How do we respect that? How do we talk about learning acceleration? You mentioned our work here in the Pittsburgh region, Remake Learning. This is the work that we've tried to do for the past 15 years in our region, recognizing that learning happens everywhere. Mm -hmm. How do we prepare the adults in kids' lives, whether it's a parent, a teacher, a librarian, someone who runs the summer camp at the museum, 
to be differently situated to support kids, to identify the things that light them up. And if your kid is lit up by coding or maker-centered learning or something else, thinking about learning as happening everywhere, to think about our cities as learning campuses. Mm -hmm. Learning doesn't just happen in school, the 14 to 20% of, of waking hours that kids happen in, to be in school, right? It happens in other places too. And, and how do we start to think about the work that we do in our cities and communities to really build that, to connect that, to support the adults so that they're, they're differently positioned to support families and kids. And, and that's the work that we need to do in our communities to really build the sensibility of the neighborhood. It was Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. It wasn't Mr. Rogers' school. It wasn't Mr. Rogers' classroom. It was Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. So what is the work that we need to do in our neighborhoods all around the world? And I would say like we, we are, it's exciting because we are beginning to see a shift in this direction. One of the people we profile in the book is a remarkable educator named Dr. Or Dr. Valerie Kinlock. And Dr. Kinlock describes for us the moment she fell in love with learning. And she, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read the quote because I can't improve on her words. She mm -hmm. says, she realized that people around her were a series of books that I hadn't been reading. Everything my teachers were trying to teach me was always right in front of me. I didn't have to open a book to read it. I could just sit and listen to the conversations happening on the front porches or at the kitchen table or even in the hallways at school. And when I realized that, that's when I fell deeply in love with learning. Now, not only do I love that quote and that philosophy, I love the fact that Dr. Kinlock is now the Dean of the School of Education at the University of Pittsburgh. So Dr. Kinlock is overseeing thousands of teachers and trainings and talking about this kind of thing. So I do think that we are gonna start seeing a shift over time toward this sort of neighborhood approach and valuing other kinds of learning because again as roger showed us learning is happening everywhere all the time yeah that is incredible that is incredible and i've actually experienced some of that here too so uh there is the dalai lama center that's here in vancouver and uh they uh they have a conference every year and it's all for educators and they they have brilliant guests and speakers and um Dr. Rick Hansen was one of them. Um, if you know him, he you know he he has a book called Resilient. He talks about yes. you know um, you know communication and anyway uh, and and empathy and kindness and all of those things, right? And so I also agree with you. I I am I am really. Um, I'm, I'm really hopeful for the future because I do see that shift changing too. And I do see our teachers here going through, um, going through that learning, which is, which is really important. Uh, and, and I, and, you know, as, as you were talking, Ryan, before, uh, you know, when we talk about curiosity, it reminds me. Uh, so I, I interviewed uh, Mike Alpert from the curiosity blueprint. He had a really awesome quote, which is um, when you're curious, you know, you can't hate, you can't judge when you're curious, right? You, isn't that great? Yeah. I love that. I love that. There's, there's a quote in our book that I think is a nice compliment to that. And that is that much of the prejudice in the world is our inability to reveal our ignorance about one another. Mm -hmm. um, I think that those, I think they're saying the same thing. You're absolutely right. When you're curious, when you're in a state of wonder, um, it's a lot harder to be angry. It's a lot harder to be judgmental. And it's a lot easier to be a neighbor if you want to learn more about the people around you. Yeah. I know I've always said there isn't a person on this planet that I don't like once I've gotten to know them. Yeah. Right? Because it is easy to judge. But if you just get to know someone, like there's something beautiful in everyone, I think. Um, so I want to just ask you, Greg, 
uh, you just said, you know, as a, as a, you know, on the neighborhood, a global neighbor, neighborhood, if you will, you said there's things that we need to do, things that we need to bring into the neighborhood in order to, um, you know, really help our kids thrive. And I, I also have to say, a lot of us as adults, we do need to know where to start, right? Because we were not necessarily brought up with strong emotional intelligence, which is what we're really talking about here, right? The ability to understand my own feelings and those of other people, to relate to other people, to not take things personally, to not judge, all of those things. And I think what's really exciting is, especially in the work that I do, is that I'm teaching parents how to do that so that they can do that for their kids. So I see this whole generation changing and, and being able to really be so much more emotionally uh, intelligent, but we're still not quite there yet. So, so what do we as adults need to do? And, and what are, you know, when you talk about the neighborhood changes that need to happen, what does that mean? Yeah, so it's really about what we as, a, as grownups need to do. So for example, how are we through our county government, our state department of education, how are we supporting professional development uh, and learning for our teachers? What are the spaces we're creating for our teachers who are always improving their craft? How do we bring this work to them in sensible, smart ways that's usable? How do we support those candidates in schools of education like Ryan described? How do we support clusters of schools maybe working with museums and libraries in new ways? How could, um, whether it's from the province or from the state, we use public funds to create common programming across schools. So maybe schools and museums and, and other organizations are actually working together and being compelled to work together in creating genuine learning pathways for kids. How do we support parents, families, and caregivers? We launched something here in Pittsburgh called Remake Learning Days. So we invited five years ago, schools, museums, libraries, creative industries, early learning centers to say, hey, open up your makerspace, open up your STEM lab, open up your whatever it is and create a family friendly event. And we will market this all at one time as if it's a regional festival of innovative learning. There in the first year ended up being nearly 300 events, self-organized, hosted in the very neighborhoods where people live, and it was a chance for parents and families to come into these spaces and say, what's happening? How is learning being remade? It's not familiar in my own experience. There's something going on here. If in fact my kid is lit up by robotics or is lit up by biosciences or whatever it is, something I know nothing about, how do I start to think about how I support him or her? And, and what are the other, all the other resources in my community? And also the goal of Remake Learning Days is to start to build demand among parents themselves. So as they're going to a parent-teacher conference or they're going to a school board meeting, they start to ask questions about what are we doing? Why are we doing it? How are we doing it? Are we thinking about learning in this way? Robin, it's exciting because 30,000 families came out that first year. It's work that's been repeated annually here in Southwestern Pennsylvania. And here in 2021, there are 17 places all across America now that are hosting Remake Learning Days the state of Oregon, San Diego County in California, Washington, DC, Eastern Appalachia, centered on the huge metropolis of Pikeville, Kentucky, has 80 events uh, coming up for their Kentucky Learning Days. So through private means, through public means, through budgeting, through support for professional learning, there's, there's layers of work we can do 
to start to build a new sensibility, a new mindset about what learning is, not what education is, not what schooling is, but what learning is and how we support learning differently, knowing who today's kids are and what their futures hold. Mm. Wow, that's powerful. Yes, I, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more and sign me up to help in any way that I can because that, that is so exciting. <laughs> and as somebody who is kind of nosy, I would love to know how all those things are made and done. So I would be like there too. Well, there's a, there is a website, so remakelearningdays.org is the, the URL for that work. And in fact, there's a playbook there. Um, you know, other people have taken that work and run with it. In Christchurch, New Zealand, they took the Remake Learning Days playbook, and they're about to host their second annual Remake Learning Days in Christchurch, New Zealand. Oh, so cool. That is so neat. That is so great. Oh, I, thank you for sharing that. I just love that. I love that. Um, you know, so so it's so interesting because um, what we're what we're also talking about too is the value of our childhoods, right? And how important they are. Which, of course, I will relate to it being as you know, as as a as a parent coach, working with parents so that they can you know really like what I really help parents do is understand their kids' behavior in a whole different way, so they don't you know, take it as good or bad. They're really just understanding it, just being curious. I, you know, I say it all the time, right, is to really be curious. And so um, there was, uh, I, again, in your book, uh, in the introduction, you talk about um, a group of parents that came together and, and they were thriving adults as, as, as you, they were uh, sort of labeled as thriving adults. And they had some things in common, right? And those things were that they had... Um, really positive childhood experiences. Um, it, it wasn't so much that they focused on academic achievements as they did their own curiosity, right? Um, they didn't find their passions in post-secondary education, so in university and college, right, necessarily. And they were inspired by people like teachers, um, novels, art, different things like that. So can you speak a little bit about about that and, and how really this does make us thrive as adults. Sure, so um, that was actually, the, that group of parents was actually the genesis for Remake Learning, which Greg was just discussing. Um, those, those sort of breakfast meetings where, Greg, you can speak to this a little bit uh, more than I can, but getting together over pancakes and coffee and talking about what were our true moments of learning? What were our true moments of self-definition? Mm -hmm. And how do we build a modern day neighborhood based on those principles? That's really the, the genesis of our book. Um, one other thing I do want to mention, just going back to your question about um, what's a starting point for parents. Mm. Um, there's a, a study I brought up in a couple other interviews. I, always, I just think it's so beautifully simple that I wanted to share it with you. Oh, please do. Uh, and especially because it takes place not far from you. So this happened at the University of Washington um, mm -hmm. back in the 70s and 80s. Um, researchers there split a group of about 800 kids into two groups, okay? So the parents and teachers of group one got extra help building strong relationships with their children. Group two was the control group, so their parents and teachers didn't get any sort of extra support. Many decades later, in fact, just in 2019, the researchers released the results of what happened to these two groups of kids. And that group whose parents and teachers had gotten extra help building strong relationships were outperforming their peers on everything. They were happier, 
They were more involved in their communities. They were making more money. They were more healthy physically. They were overall just much more fulfilled with their lives. And those scientists boiled this all down to one starting point, one simple statement. And all they said was, be present with your kids. You know, the most important thing you can do for any child, for any human being, is to give them your presence. So that means playing with them. That means asking them what makes them wonder. It means letting them have these big, deep feelings that sometimes to adults might seem irrational or just downright bizarre. But, you know, a big theme of Roger's work is that everything that's mentionable is manageable. And if we can give kids space to have those big, deep feelings and to wonder about things, and to find those things that they're passionate about, like passionate about, like the group of adults uh, in Pittsburgh so many years back. Um, I think that's the most valuable thing we can do in terms of creating lifelong learners. And Robin, I, I'll make this very personal for you and I'll do so, I hope, without crying. <laughs> mm. So in the context of being present to your children and Robin, your earlier comments too about respecting childhood, right? Partly, you know, the respecting childhood means being present and acknowledging what's happening. So a number of weeks ago, my older daughter, um, you know, leaned over to me as she was sitting on the sofa and said, daddy, am I gonna be shot? Now she asked that question because she's developing her identity. She recognizes that her mom is Asian. She's half Asian and the anti-Asian violence and hatred that has, um, erupted in our world, came right into our household. And you can imagine, um, look, I'm a white privileged male. I, it's not a question I've ever confronted in my life. I, you know, I suspect any number of people listening to this now have heard this question and maybe even heard it 25 times. There are some people who are lucky enough that will never hear it. Mm -hmm. um, I heard it that night, it stopped me in my tracks and it was as if this book came rushing forward to me in the mm -hmm. sense how, how do I be present to her right now? How do I acknowledge her hard question? How do I acknowledge to her that I don't have an answer? How do I talk to her and wonder together in this hard moment about what answers might be? And also how do I make sure that she feels safe, both physically and psychologically? And all of these lessons of Fred Rogers just came home on my living room floor, floor in a, an incredibly powerful way. Um, and, um, and it goes to the core point of being present and respecting childhood and big childhood questions, however fanciful or however hard they might be. Well, and I think that speaks a lot to who you are as a dad to recognize that this was a stop moment. This was, oh, no, 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 don't worry about it. Your question I can get shot. Yeah. Well, that does not acknowledge your child's fear because that's what's underneath it, it's fear. Right, and she's scared. And if you were to not stop and just say, "No, you're going to be fine," that would not offer in any way, shape, or form. So that's really beautiful that you know that that's the kind of dad you are. And again, this is the ripple effect that we're going to start to see. I think in our neighborhoods, in our community, in the world, the more parents we have like you who stop and say, "Okay, this is this is a pivotal moment for me. I need to be present." and I need to make her feel safe and acknowledged and validated. Everything. And for anybody listening, can you imagine how powerful that would be if your parents did that to you? 
you know, maybe you guys were lucky enough to have that. It, you know, I, I wasn't parented that way and that's no fault of my parents. They did the best they could. But if you can imagine how powerful that would be for your parent to turn around and say, oh, wow, you must be so scared right now. Let's sit down and talk about it. I mean, I don't know how you answered that, but that is a, I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess that maybe she will remember that moment forever herself. I certainly will remember it forever. And um, this, is, this is the importance of noticing and then struggling together. And isn't that, isn't that ultimately a formula for great learning? Mm -hmm. You know, it's in those powerful personal moments. It's also in learning those ABCs. Mm -hmm. It's in learning to interview. It's the noticing and struggling together and acknowledging um, what that opportunity provides if we do it well. Yeah. Wow. This is such a great conversation. I feel so excited and hopeful for the future. I love that you're sharing all of these lessons with um, everybody through your book. When you wonder, you're learning. Uh, what can you? What would you like to leave the listeners with here today as we as we uh, as we go towards our ending? Well, I would want to say thank you. You know, Fred Rogers essentially said anyone who cares for a child is a hero of mine. And whether you're doing that in your own household, you're doing it in a classroom, you're doing it in an after-school program, we are, there, there's great reason, Robin, to be so hopeful because there are so many caring adults, caring grown-ups who are working hard every day. And so I begin with thanks. And, um, you know, this, this is a passion project as writing any book you would know is, right? And we're hopeful that When You Wonder is a source of fuel for us all as we bring our kids through these hard times mm -hmm. and look to a more hopeful post-pandemic future. And, um, and surprise, surprise, we can look to someone as familiar as Fred Rogers. And even though his work began 50 years ago, it is incredibly relevant in this year and for years to come. And so we're hopeful people find fuel in, in this book. Yeah, I, I, I don't have much to add to that except to say that you know, people, including Greg and I, have this intense uh, emotional nostalgia for Fred. We, we love the way he made us feel. Sometimes he's sort of held up in our culture as almost a, a secular saint. Mm -hmm. If I would leave your listeners with anything, it would be to let them know that Fred Rogers was an amazing person in just about every way. But it wasn't because he was gifted some sort of special ability that the rest of us don't have. I mean, the whole... The whole truth of Fred's ministry was that all of us can do a version of what Fred did. You know, he did this through intense work. He did it through guidance from the learning sciences. He did it by combining art, science, and spirituality. He left us his blueprint for doing the same. And whatever that looks like for each of us, um, I think the fact that um, Rogers left us his method puts uh, the responsibility on the rest of us to carry the legacy forward. And there are a lot of people doing that in some really remarkable ways already. Well, thank you so much for your contribution and, um, you know, for, for your work in this area. We are only better for it. And 
I want to end on a thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your work and, uh, and for sharing. This has been such a great conversation. And I hope everybody listening has really enjoyed it. And uh, we do have um, the first chapter of the book for you uh, in the toolbox. So thank you for that as well. Thank, thank you, Robin. It's thank been you, our Robin. Pleasure. What a joy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of my podcast, Parenting Our Future. I'm parent coach Robin McMahon, and if you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with someone who you think might also need to hear this message. And don't forget to subscribe, and if you like my work, I'd be grateful if you gave me a five-star rating. For those of you who like my content and want more, visit me at yellingcurebook.com to get your copy of my book and to find other resources to help you. Until next time, I am wishing you and your family peace and peace.